Awesome. Well, if you're offended by wealth or prosperity uh, or blessing, whatever you do, don't read the Old Testament. Because uh, what you'll see is the opulence of God on, on full display. On, on the stage uh, today with me, I, I, I have uh, a, an artistic rendition of the Ark uh, of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was built out of solid acacia wood overlaid in solid gold. And on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was two cherubim angels carved out of solid gold. And on top of the angel wings was considered the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was where the presence of God would rest, where Moses would talk to God as a man would talk to his friend. And once a year, the high priest would take the blood of a bull or a lamb and sprinkle it on the mercy seat as a representation of the sins of the nation of Israel and the Hebrew children being put off for another year. Until Jesus, the pure and spotless lamb, who for once and for all applied his blood on the mercy seat, and now through the veil of his torn flesh, you and I have entered in, to a better covenant, but the Old Testament and the Ark of the Covenant is a representation of the centrality and the importance of the presence of God. There's only 12 chapters in the entire New Testament that don't reference the Old Testament. The New Testament is a fulfillment of the shadow or the painting of the Old Testament. Uh, and, and in the Old Testament, we see this concentration, this focus, this obsession, you could say, on keeping the presence of God at the center of the heart of God's holy nation. I, I don't know if you saw any of the news this week, but there's actually been major movement in the nation of Israel this week as it pertains to their relationship with other nations around them. There was a groundbreaking diplomatic treaty signed with the United Arab Emirates. More nations are to follow. Friend, you and I are living in a day and age where we are literally seeing Bible prophecy fulfilled in front of our eyes. God is doing something significant in the Middle East, and he's doing something significant and specific in the nation of Israel. I believe one of the signs of the end times that I believe we are in is that there is a revival, an awakening, and an engathering of Jewish people into faith in Jesus Christ, and we're seeing that in our world today, as well as God sovereignly establishing peace in places where peace hasn't existed before. The Ark of the Covenant was first constructed or built by Moses in the Exodus period of, uh, of, of, of Old Testament history. Uh, the Jewish people are coming out of 400 years of slavery under the Egyptian Pharaoh. Moses tells Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship God. And they do. And about a year into the wilderness experience, Moses has a meeting with God on Mount Sinai, receives the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, which is God's heart expressed through the law written on stone tablets. And coming down from the mountain, God downloads into Moses' heart an exact description of what the Ark of the Covenant should be and once he built it, what it would carry. The significance of the New Testament is that you and I have now become an ark. You and I now, as believers in Christ Jesus, carry the presence of God inside of us. And so no longer do we have to approach a middle man or a foreign object in order to somehow encounter the God of the universe. No, he takes residence inside of us through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So what rested in an ark in the Old Testament now rests in men and women who profess faith in Christ Jesus today. And so that is the good news of the gospel is that Jesus wins, his presence lives in us, and his spirit causes us 
to be overcomers. But the Ark of the Covenant wasn't always at home in the nation of Israel. In fact, the Bible tells us a story in 1 Samuel 4 where the Israelites uh, were going to war with the Philistines. And they thought it would be a good idea to try to use this ark and this presence as a tool for their advantage, as a tool for their platform, instead of honoring it in reverence like God had commanded. And so the army took it out, and they went to war with the Philistines. And the Bible says on that day, 30,000 of the troops of Israel were slaughtered, and the ark of the covenant was stolen. And who stole it? Well, of course, the Philistines. They took it back to their nation because they thought that would be a good idea. And the net result of that action was that there was an outbreak of rats and tumors in the Philistine camp. So if you think you're having a bad day, just be glad you weren't a Philistine in 1 Samuel 4. And so the presence of God as it enters into their foreign territory causes an outbreak. They say, we got to get this stuff away from us. Let's send it back with gifts, back to where it belongs, uh, because this is not something that we can tolerate because of the sin in our own lives and, and the destruction that we've done. And so the Philistines put it on a cart, they send it back, and it never quite makes it back to the heart of the nation, the city of David, which is Jerusalem, but instead rests in an outlier city that was home to the house of a man named Abinadab. The reason why I tell you that this morning is so that contextually it makes sense where we pick up this story today in 2 Samuel. The house of Abinadab was located in a small city seven and a half miles west of Jerusalem where it sat for 20 years. Although the ark of God was now in the nation where it belonged, it wasn't at the center of the nation in God's holy city, the city of David, Jerusalem, where it should be. And so what we read in 2 Samuel is the journey by which now King David takes the ark of God in which the presence of God rests, and he moves it from the peripheral or the outside to the inside. So I hope this morning you can appreciate the spiritual significance of what this story in Scripture communicates, the need in your life and in my life to make the presence of God the central thing that rests on the altar of our heart. Now it's interesting, the Bible says that as the ark of God sat in the house of Abinadab, that the house of Abinadab prospered. Let me share this with you this morning. God's presence isn't some type of reward waiting for you at the end of your searching or at the culmination of your development or at the graduation of your career. It is the guiding and abiding force that blesses every house you enter until you finally find your home. It took me a couple houses to find the one that I liked, but at every turn in the journey, God's presence marked my life. And it's my hope that when people walk into this church, they can finally breathe a little easier, almost as if to say, I have finally found my home. Fred, can I encourage you in your ecclesiology this morning or, or in your theological understanding of why the church exists? When the house is built for you, then everything in the house receives its value based on your preference. If you don't like the lights, you change it. If you don't like the carpet, you remove it. If, if, you, don't, if you don't like the paint, you redo it. 
or in a church context, if you don't love the worship team, then, then, then they aren't good. Or if you love the kids' ministry, then they are good. And Frank, can I tell you this morning, it's actually freeing to be in a place that doesn't revolve around you. And see, when the house is built for him, the question is not what do we prefer, but instead, who do we prefer? And when we prefer him, then my focus is not on individual likes versus dislikes, but instead, is this a house in which his presence dwells? Sometimes I think for us, we get a little confused about why the church exists. We think it exists for us. Friend, I'm here to challenge that notion this morning. The church doesn't exist for us. It exists for him. The worship doesn't exist for us. It exists for him. People say, well, I don't like worship. That's okay. We weren't worshiping you. The church exists to bring glory to Jesus. And the apostle Peter says this of the church, that we are priests unto God. And that our job as we gather is to minister to the Lord. And as we minister to him, watch what happens. His glory comes down and in turn, he ministers to us. See, we've built the church trying to attract people. When God's heart has been that we would build a church that attracts his presence. When you get the presence, you'll get the people. When you get first things first, when you get it right from the start, when you correct your ideology, when you have a shift in your theology, when you recognize that this thing doesn't exist to build me a platform, but instead introduce me to his presence, all of a sudden you begin to be less reactive as it pertains to what you like or what you don't like. Because at the end of the day, it's not really about me. It's about him. And Jesus says this in the book of John. He says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all kinds of people unto myself. Which means this, the primary purpose of the church is to lift Jesus high. And when the church does that well, Jesus does the heavy lifting of bringing the right people at the right time. And let me say this this morning. I want you to hear my heart. Please hear me clearly because I think it might challenge some of your notions. Do you know that the primary purpose of the church is not evangelism? It doesn't mean that that's not important. And it doesn't mean that that doesn't happen. But the primary purpose of the church is to bring glory to Jesus. And out of that place of bringing glory to him, people find him as their personal Lord and Savior. So most important thing that we model here in this environment is a desperate pursuit of the presence of God. And every week we see people give their lives to Jesus. Every week we see people baptized in the Holy Spirit. We see people born again. We see people healed and filled and freed and changed and delivered and transformed. But we don't seek the gift as much as we seek the giver. And as our focus is on him, he does the heavy lifting. One of the rules of organizational draw is that the way that you draw people is the way that you keep people. And if I've got to draw people with cheap religious gimmicks, then an economic downturn probably signs the death warrant for this church. I've found something that's free and really good. And it's this well of living water. And everybody who comes to it finds that once they drink of it, they thirst no more. And if we could just change the way that we think about why the church exists, I think it would help neutralize 
some of the complaints or the grumblings that we're so given to on a regular basis. When the house is built for him, the question is not what do we prefer, but who do we prefer. In 2 Samuel 6, starting in verse 1, the Bible is going to tell us the story of David bringing the ark from the house of Abinadab back to Jerusalem. And again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And he arose and he went with all the people who were with him to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab. And David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, fir wood and harps and stringed instruments and tambourines. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen stumbled. The anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him there for his heir and he died there by the ark of God. Friend, let me be clear this morning. The presence of God will still kill unrighteousness in your life and that's good news. Meaning this, I can't get right and then get in his presence because I can't be made right outside of his presence. See, we understand through the new covenant that God isn't mad at you. He's jealous for you. And anything that becomes a barrier between where you're at and what you need to receive, God is in the business of consuming. God gave specific instruction to the Israelites in the book of Exodus about how to carry the ark. It was never supposed to be placed on a cart. It was never supposed to be driven by oxen. It was only meant to be carried by the priests. And of course, David, in his ignorance or arrogance, misremembers that command and puts this ark on a cart and in doing so, causes death where there should be life. Friend, let me tell you this. This presence will not serve any other platform. This presence will not serve any other product. It will not serve any other master. This presence is holy. It's the result of a God who is drawn near and it will not be driven by the mechanics of man or the objects of organization. It must be held in reverence by God's people. The cart was new, but the game was old. And God's presence would not be attached to man's platform. Friend, when you go all in on Jesus, it is not according to your rules, it's according to his. And I think so often, for so many of us, we want to add Jesus to the already busy ideological bookshelf of our life. Let me add a little Jesus here. Let me add a little relationship there. Let me add a little presence of God in this context. Let me attach it to the busyness of my own cart. And when God moves in, it's not to take sides, it's to take over. And this God will not share you with any other lover. And this God will not share you with any other preference. This God, in fact, is all-consuming. The Bible says this, that David gathered all the choice men of Israel. In fact, 30,000. 
David had some choice men, some people that he had chosen. Watch. But not every one of David's choices would be able to withstand the journey that God was taking David on. I can't bring every choice with me on this journey. I can't bring every relationship with me on this journey. I can't bring every decision with me on this journey. I can't bring every behavior, opinion, belief, identity, proclivity, or system with me on this journey. And I've got to decide. What is my disposition going to be when the consuming fire of God's fierce love burns up the choices of my life in order to reveal the attitude of my heart? I feel like we spend so much time negotiating with God to keep things that are only holding us back. Right? It's time to let go of some unhealthy choices. Not every one of David's choices would survive the journey. Sometimes we spend so much time mourning the choices that God in his mercy has removed. And in doing so, to reveal to you the things that you need most in your life. Here's the problem. We want God plus everything else. And that type of faith is ultimately unsustainable. Because the closer you get to him, the less of everything else you need. Watch the development of spiritual maturity. It builds to an apex. It starts out broad and it ends narrow. And as you follow this Jesus, what you find is that his command towards Christ's followership means that the closer you get to him, the more stuff that you had or that you held is consumed by his goodness. It, 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 is not, it, is, it is not a gospel of negativity. It, it's not to get you to develop an opinion of God like he's here to kill all of your joy or, or, to, or to ruin all of your fun or, or to eliminate everything that you've had in your previous life. No, as we draw closer to him, what we recognize is what I thought I needed pales in comparison to what I actually need. I actually need him. No, I thought I needed that dysfunctional relationship, but now that I'm free from it, I recognize that I need him. No, I thought I needed those behaviors and those systems and those pills and that lifestyle. But the closer I get to him, the more that I recognize that what I need is held in his heart and he desperately wants to get it into mine. We didn't just invite him into our heart, he's invited us into his. And the closer you get to him, the more that you recognize all that glitters is not gold. But when I stare at him, it's like a fine diamond. No, it's, 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 it's his presence. It's his presence. Come on, how many of you have been on that journey of sanctification? Where you start is not where you finished. It's this invitation into Christ followership by which you recognize, oh, God is purifying. He's refining. He's removing what I, I, I thought needed to be there and replacing it with what, what actually needs to be there. I'm, I'm, on, I'm on a journey where God in his mercy is clarifying my choices. Reminds me of what Joshua says to the nation of Israel as they cross over the Jordan River into the promised land. He gathers all the elders and all of the people and he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Choose. Choose. Our culture is drunk on syncretism. We want to add Jesus to our long laundry list of ideologies that we follow. We want a little bit of God here, a little bit of Eastern religion there a little bit of pagan politics there. We want to mix it all together and then wonder why we don't have victory in our life. It's like people who come to church and stare at social media the whole time and wonder where their breakthrough is. Friend, it just don't make sense. 
We want to add everything in and create our own little micro-religions, but then claim Jesus once a week. And Joshua gathers the people and says, look, just choose. Just choose today who you're going to serve. But understand that every choice you make comes with a consequence. And the consequence of following Christ is that he becomes our sole reward. <laughs> Accolades come. Compliments come. Resource comes. Reward comes. Those types of things that come and go. Here one day, gone the next. But in your followership of him, what you recognize is that Christ himself has become my inheritance. Uh, watch what the Bible says in verse 9. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. <clears throat> he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed him and his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed, and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went, and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, Jerusalem, with gladness. And so it was, watch, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Friend, as soon as you run out of sacrifice... You run out of fuel on this journey. It's almost as if the center of the gospel is not self-fulfillment, but instead self-denial. If a man wants to find himself, he must first lose himself for Christ's sake. Fred, the closer that you get to his presence, the more that you commit to following it as the guiding force in your life, the more and the more and the more that you will be invited into lifelong sacrifice. See, we made sacrifice a dirty word in the church. Or we've made it like an occasional behavior in the church. And yet the way that scripture talks about sacrifice is in the context of joy. We joyfully will make a sacrifice of praise. We bring it with gladness and fullness in our life knowing that this is the normalized behavior of those who follow Yahweh. And David, who now has picked up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom, probably about four to four and a half miles from the temple in Jerusalem. And the Bible says of David that every six paces, he stops the whole processional, and they sacrifice an oxen and a fatted sheep. A pace in the Old Testament would be the equivalent to just under five feet. Every six paces would be 30 feet. If you calculated on the low end that the house of Obed-Edom would be four miles from Jerusalem, that would mean that over 700 times. David stops the processional carrying the ark and says, now is the time to sacrifice. Every six steps, let's stop and give reverence to God. Every six steps, let's stop and remember his great faithfulness to his people. And can you imagine what the view would be from Temple Mount back to the house of Obed-Edom? 
a trail of oxen and fatted sheep that had been given in sacrifice to the Lord. It's almost as if this is a descriptor of what it looks like to follow Jesus. That you would reach the end of your life and say, you know, there were some good seasons and there were some tough seasons, but I have never regretted following Jesus. There are some things that I had to give up, but what I've been given in return makes everything worth it. Friend, I would plead with you in the midst of our Western Christian context, don't get the gospel twisted. It's not a lottery ticket by which you win everything that your heart so desires every day before you go to bed. It is a lifestyle marked with sacrifice. Why? Because Jesus is worthy even when life is difficult. Jesus is worthy. Now watch what happens. Let me say this, Fred, your journey of Christ's followership will either be marked by sacrifice or selfishness. You choose. My hope is that you reach the end of your journey and can say, I, I've never regretted choosing Jesus. And the Bible says this in verse 14, then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a, a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and, and with the sound of the trumpet. Now, now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, who was David's wife, looked through the window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Fred, not everyone will understand your worship because not everyone has walked your journey. And he who has been forgiven much, loves much. Let me tell you something this morning. Commitment will take you places passion can't. I love passion. I preach passionate. I talk passionate. I interact with people passionately. I, 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 I'm pretty much a passionate person just about all of the time. One of my favorite quotes of all time comes from Beethoven. Where he says, to play a wrong note is unavoidable, but to play without passion is inexcusable. I love passionate people. But can I tell you, what I've recognized in my life is that commitment will take me places passion can't. Here's what I love about David in this story. He just saw one of his choices eliminated in the presence of God. He saw one of the things that he held dear, one of his choice men, and it got vaporized in the presence of God. And David has to make a choice. I'm going to go back to the house of Obed-Edom. I'm going to commit to carrying the presence of God. Every six paces, I'm going to reflect on this journey, and I'm going to sacrifice once again. And it's not always going to feel great, but I've made a commitment. And here's what I love about this story. As it as it attaches to David's commitment, what we see is a renewal of David's passion. Watch, 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 watch. We want to feel our way into acting. And yet scripture paints this picture that we don't feel our way into acting. We act our way into feeling. Well, I don't feel like worshiping today. Yeah, join the club. Well, I don't feel like following Jesus today. All right, we all have those days. 
I don't feel like being faithful today. I, I don't feel like being generous today. I, I don't feel like getting out of bed today. I just don't feel it anymore. And some of us live these listless lives like sailboats without wind, floating around on the water, waiting for this mystical feeling to come back. God, where'd my passion go? I don't know. Friend, where's your commitment? Because I'll tell you, passion follows commitment. <laughs> but God, where's it at? And in charismatic environments, we love the feeling. You know what I mean? Come on, we love when the worship hits right, man. We love when the drums drop in. We love when everybody's there. But sometimes we get six paces out. We got to sacrifice. And it don't feel so good then. And my plea for you today is that in moments of sacrifice, you recommit to following this Jesus. And in doing so, recognizing that passion will follow my commitment. David had a passion, but it got interrupted by some correction. And he had to make a decision in that moment. Is God still worthy of my worship? And is his presence still worthy of my sacrifice? Friend, don't cheat on God's purpose by sleeping with man's opinions. It'll interrupt your commitment and steal your passion. And as David danced before the Lord, I love this. The Bible says his kingly robe falls off. And he's dressed in a linen ephod. I've got a picture for you this morning. And the linen ephod was the garment of the Levites, the priests. And as David is dancing before the Lord, his exterior is shed and his interior is revealed. And it's almost as if he's communicating to the entire nation at once. You've known me as a king, but I've always been a priest. My heart has always been on his presence. Now I know I've got a lot of titles. I know I've got a lot of vocations. I know I've got a lot of busyness. I know I've got a lot of accolades. I know I've got a lot of opinions. I know I've got a lot of people who view me in all sorts of different ways. But what I've always been, what I've always carried underneath my robe is my ephod. I've always been a priest. This is always who I've been. And I think sometimes in our lives, we get so busy with the labels that we've believed or received or have celebrated in our own lives. I'm just a teacher. I'm just a mechanic. I'm just a professor. I just work in, in tech. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a graduate. I'm just in high school. I'm just in college. And we've allowed all of these exteriors to define our destiny, forgetting who we've actually been all along. Friend, before you were anything else, you were a priest to him. Before you were a mom, before you were a dad, before you were in this youth ministry, before you showed up to support this church, you have always been a priest. And Peter says, we're part of the priesthood. All of us, you and me alike, we've always been people whose hearts have been moved by his presence. You remember what it felt like when you first met the Holy Spirit? 
You remember what it felt like when you finally found a home or a church by which you finally came alive in his presence? You remember the way it moved your heart? That was God reminding you of who you have always been to him. I'm in like this PhD program at school. And every once in a while, I hear the Lord tapping me on the shoulder, saying, Russell, you've always been my priest. Just as a reminder of who I really am. Now watch what happens. Let me end here. David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, his wife, came out to meet David, mocks him. How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of those base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. And I will be even more undignified than this. I'll be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Do you know what judgment of somebody else's worship produces in your life? Barrenness. Because you can't ever replicate what you won't honor. You might be sitting here today and you go, man, y'all worship a little different. Them revival nights are a little crazy. And you guys get wild. You guys got the lights and the smoke and the drums. and Man, this generation just worships a little different. I think it might just be too wild for me. You know what I love about worship of Jesus? Is when you lay down your preference, it unites the generations around a move of his spirit. You may not understand the reason why we worship the way that we do, but friend, it wasn't before you, it was before him. It was before the Lord. There's a sacrifice of praise. There's a decision that you make in a moment of sometimes even discomfort, confusion, questions. I'm going to be a person who honors his presence. And as a church, it's a reminder for us who are in this system, this culture, this house, that this is the type of people who we're going to be. And this is the type of church that we're going to create. And if we'll keep an honor of his presence at the forefront of everything that we do, God will continue to bless and prosper, give us insight and influence for the increase of his kingdom. To those things, there is no end. Would you stand with me as we close this morning? I want to add my faith to yours and close in a time of prayer this morning and just believe, just believe together that God is number one, up to something good in your life, and number two, that you are feeling and sensing the drawing 
and the wooing of the Holy Spirit this morning. As deep cries out unto deep, that you would sense that voice speaking to your spirit today. Come closer. Come drink of this living water. Come eat of this living bread. Come near to me, and I'll come near to you. Come dine with me. Scripture says, if you would hear him knocking on the door of your heart, do not harden your heart, but instead invite him in. And maybe you're here this morning. You've been born again for 20 years. But you feel like, man, there's a well that's been stopped up in me. I don't remember the last time I was moved in his presence. I don't know if it's really at the center of my faith in Christ. You want to make a fresh dedication for that this morning. Friend, today's your day. Maybe you're here today and, and you say, I've never known Jesus like I should, but I want to. But I want to. And friend, today's your day. I want to pray for you as we close. Father, we need your help like never before. Friend, we're hungry. God, we're, we're hungry for your presence like, like never before. And God, we ask today that you would respond to the hunger of your people, not by giving us more stuff, but by giving us the thing that matters most, an outpouring of your presence in our lives. God, I pray that we would take the presence from the peripheral of our existence to the center of who we are. God, that we would recognize today that who we've been all along is priests unto you, carriers of your presence. God, help us. God, help us. For those of you here today, you don't know Jesus. <laughs> Maybe you did it one time, but you don't know him like you should today. As we close, I'm going to pray a prayer, and I want you to agree with me, and I'm going to believe today that we're going to see transformation in your life. And it looks like this, simple. God, help. I'm lost without you. I've sinned against you. I need your spirit to come alive in my life that I may pass from death unto life. I profess faith in the work of Jesus. I now need your Holy Spirit to seal that work until the final day of redemption. And I commit in this moment that the trajectory of my life, my destiny, my future is never the same. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Come on, all God's people said amen. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for joining us for church this morning. Friend, if you prayed that prayer.